Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects. I like to think about that as a treatment in medicine, right? It can be rightly applied and it's then very healthy. It can even enforce some discipline in the in the businesses that are acquired, or it can be poorly applied, the dosage is wrong, and then it can be lethal. It is certainly factually correct that private equity also, you can point us to businesses that otherwise would have been just fine and private equity came in and destroyed it. Now the empirical question is how often does this happen? And how do you compare this to the cases where private equity arguably had a positive impact to the business or even saved the business? Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of Trium Connects. Now, before I introduce my guests for this episode, I just want to take a moment and recognize that this marks our one-year anniversary from when we started producing the podcast. And what a long, strange year it has been. During the various lockdowns of this last troublesome year, time has had a strange kind of characteristic that is hard to explain. At least for me, it has. If I think about the day-to-day, one day seems to just meld into the other, and therefore time seems to have flowed by really quickly. On the other hand, It seems like we've been in this kind of crisis, this COVID-19 crisis, for such a long time. We started the podcast as a way to try to keep in touch with the Triumph community and to provide, at least in a small way, some connection, some kind of shadow of the type of conversations and interactions that you would have if you were on the degree, or a memory of those interactions if you're an alumni. I hope that our conversations have provided, even if in a very tiny way, a connection that otherwise wouldn't be there. And this is for our Trium students now, our alumni, and those people who aren't necessarily related to Trium, but that have tuned in to the podcast, you are all most welcome. And so, as we launch year two of the podcast, I really hope for all of you that it will be a year full of much more health and happiness than the last one. Thank you all for your support, and as always, if you like what you're listening to, please don't forget to review us and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. My guest this week is Oliver Gottschalk. Oliver is the Academic Dean of the Trium Executive MBA Program and an Associate Professor of Strategy and Business at HEC Paris. Oliver is one of the world's leading scholars on the strategic logic and the performance determinants of private equity. In addition to an active research career, Oliver also founded the private company called Parax. Parax was a firm that sought to provide information to both private equity investors about fund managers' performance, but also provide an objective measurement of fund managers' performance that they could share with potential investors. Parax was recently acquired by M.J. Hudson. So in addition to his academic work in this field, Oliver brings to the table a vast amount of experience in the actual business of private equity. People often have very strong feelings about the private equity industry. 
Oliver often says that there seems to sometimes be an inverse relationship between people's judgment of the private equity industry and their level of knowledge of how it works. In this episode, we may not change your opinion about the nature of this particular form of capitalism, but we do hope that you will walk away with a clear understanding of the nature of the industry, what it does and what it doesn't do. I really enjoyed our whole conversation, but I must say one of the particular parts of it that I enjoyed maybe the most was our discussion on whether the, a common side effect of the private equity fund model is the destruction of otherwise healthy companies. The sheer size of this asset class really requires, as a kind of basic education of how the business world works, an understanding of the dynamics of this industry. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Oliver Gottschalk. Oliver Gottschalk, welcome to the podcast. Good evening. So um, we're going to talk a lot tonight about private equity. But before we started, I thought that what would maybe make a sense a bit is to give our listeners some background, uh, because I think private equity is one of those uh, topics that a lot of people have heard of, but maybe they don't have a complete kind of picture of what it is. So let's start with kind of the most basic of question. What's private about private equity? What, what, how does it distinguish itself from public markets? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, private equity is not only still what I consider under-researched, but also poorly understood in the sense that lots of people have an opinion about it. Very few people have actually some facts and some deep knowledge about it. And it's, it's uh, effectively defined by what it is not. Uh, you touch upon one important point. It is private in its name. So it's different from public equity. It's not the type of investment that you find listed in the stock market and accessible for the broad general public. It can also be nicely defined by what it's not by saying what it's different from with respect to venture capital. Venture capital, sometimes viewed as a subcategory of private equity, but, but less and less so in recent years. Venture capital is about the financing of startup ideas and the growth of new companies. Private equity is about the financing of transformation of existing businesses. So these are companies who've been around for some time, typically kind of cash flow positive, have some customers and products, but they sometimes got a little tired over the years and they need to be rejuvenated. And then private equity comes in and basically takes ownership of those business for a finite period of time. That's the other important differentiating feature to transform this business and then hand it over to the next owner. And that's the big difference between private equity acquisitions and other M&A, corporate M&A that we often talk about, because corporate M&A conceptually is like a marriage, right? You mm. find the perfect match and you want to live forever heavily after together, exploiting synergies or other advantages of being together. Private equity is a joke with my younger students. It's like uh, dating among exchange students. Like you see some benefit from being together for some time, but you know you shall part again. Um, and so after some time, inevitably, the private equity firm will want to divest of those businesses it acquired. Okay. So venture capital firms, that, that that's not really kind of the variant. It's, as you said, it's become less common. How about private debt? Is it a part of the private equity space? Would you include it in that? Yeah, I mean, people actually use the broader definition of alternative assets to lump all of this underneath. And there is there's a neat confusion in the terminology. It used to be that the things that my research is most about were called buyouts or leveraged buyouts or management buyouts. And that used to be a subcategory of private equity. Now, private equity has become mostly synonymous with, with the buyout activity. And people lump that other stuff, private debt, venture capital, private infrastructure, private real estate, all under kind of private capital 
And if you want to include hedge funds, then alternative investments more broadly. But it's it's really a question of terminology. Um, it's important to understand what we're talking about, and that's indeed professional acquirers, specialized private equity firms, take an ownership of a company, financing its transformation for three, four, five, six years, and then selling it off to the next best owner. Okay. And the main players in this, as I understand it, you tell me whether I get this wrong. You have the limited partners who provide the equity, and then the general partner who is runs the fund. Is that the basic distinction there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yes. and the, the distinction is really unlimited, right? So we aren't talking about hundreds and hundreds of partners in any given fund. It, does it generally tend to be a handful of large investors? Oh, no, there can easily be a couple of hundreds, just given how the industry matured. And, and the limited doesn't come from a limited number, but, but as you know, sure. from limited liability. Um, so it is a restricted asset class for that purpose. And the limited partners are either classified institutional investors, endowments, foundations, banks, insurances, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, or basically rich people rich enough so that they can afford to be stupid and put their money into something they don't understand. <laughs> um, so uh, um, this is the limitation of who can put their money in there. But this number can easily reach hundreds of thousands. Um, you know, it's, it's not public information how all these players are, are positioned, but there are several private equity firms who manage billions in capital who have lowered the threshold to become a limited partner to the high six digits. So with just a few hundred thousand commitment to one particular fund, you could become a limited partner, then do the math. If the fund is a 10 billion fund, not everybody is so small, but you easily have three digits, if not four digits in terms of limited partners. Okay. Okay. So a big part of this, at least in the history of private equity, as you said, was a kind of leveraged buyouts. And this was seen as a, as a kind of core of, and it's still a lot of private equity transactions, it seems to me, as I, as I read it. Can you tell us how leverage in this sense works? What is the leverage part of a buyout? I mean, technically what you're doing is you're acquiring a business with its capital structure, and it usually has you know, some debt and some equity in the balance sheet before acquisition. And then you basically, you look at this balance sheet and you, finance, you refinance it um, with much additional debt and a little fresh equity. So you're basically substituting part of the existing equity with new debt, thereby overall increasing the, the leverage ratio of the company, hence the term. Now, this is subject to tons of debate because leverage in the setting is, is often seen as something evil. Leverage obviously always amplifies, right? We know this from Accounting 101, it makes good things great and bad things catastrophic. And so naturally, it increases kind of the, the, the range of outcomes and the riskiness of the deal. Um, that is also very unpopular with some people because in most jurisdictions, debt, is, debt ex, interest expense is tax deductible. So you can basically use the leverage and the leverage buyout effectively as a tax shield to the benefit of the ultimate equity investors. Okay. But most fundamentally, I mean, leverage is not a specificity of private equity. Lots of people lose leverage for lots of good purposes. I mean, typically you take out debt when you finance a house for similar purposes as private equity does it because you basically pre-finance something hoping to disperse the debt with future free cash flow. That's exactly what's happening in a buyout business. So um, it's very problematic to reason about debt in private equity as something evil because other companies are equally highly leveraged. And so it's nothing yeah. bad with this. I like to think about debt as a, as a treatment in medicine, right? It can be rightly applied and it's then very healthy. It can even enforce some discipline in the, in the businesses that are acquired, or it can be poorly applied, the dosage is wrong, and then it can be lethal. 
Yeah. That's exactly what's going on with buyout. Well, let's park debt for a second, because I, I mean, I, as you said, this is a hugely controversial topic within private equity. And I think it makes sense to kind of unpack it later on in the discussion. But I just wanted to get this sense that what happens is that typically, at least what I read about is maybe the percentage of equity that goes into a, a target might be 20, 30%, and then you have a 60, 70% debt as a ballpark figure, something close to that. That's an average. That's about uh, right today. It depends a little bit on the on where we are on the economic cycle. In in the crazy days of private equity, that could be more than ninety percent on many large transactions. Wow. Many will have, remember the the movie or the book Barbarians at the Gate about the iconic Archie um, Nabisco buyout by KKR. They had ninety three percent debt in the capital structure, only seven percent equity. Those are extreme cases. They are very rare today, and I would say they're only. Plausible to see them. To, it's only plausible to see them today if actually the companies of the nature that the underlying business is just hyper stable and can actually support this. You'll okay. find this arguably in, in infrastructure type transactions. Okay. Okay. Now, finally, just to kind of round out the public versus private, because hmm? it seems to me that there's been this huge increase in private equity secondary markets. So, if I get this right, this is people buying kind of slices of private equity investments. Why do you think that the secondary market is growing so quickly? You got you to be careful because in private equity, there exist at least two secondaries. They have the exact same name and they mean something very different. Okay. I answer the question because I know you focus on one of them, but let me just clarify this, this, this next terminological confusion. People talk about a secondary buyout in private equity when basically a target company is sold by one private equity firm to a second private equity firm. Okay. You see this regularly there's a there's another type of secondaries where basically it's the second hand market for stakes in a private equity fund so imagine for example i wasn't a poor professor but a, but a rich super high net worth individual for some reason i had the desire to sell my private equity stake so i could sell a slice in a Pamira or kkr private equity fund to somebody else who wants that slice of this private equity fund and that is indeed increasing slightly above RATA with the pace of overall private equity growth because it's a it's an important path to liquidity. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. if you're committed to private equity and you got your money in there, there's no way to get it out because the deal is basically you commit to the private equity fund, you give them a option to invest your money over five years, however they see fit. And then you just wait and hope that the money will come back multiplied by X after a couple of years. But you have no way to get liquidity in the meantime. And if you need it, you go to that secondary market and sell a slice of your private equity exposure. Okay. So as you said, one of the distinguishing characteristics of private equity, as I understand it, is it locks up your money. So traditionally, I would say, okay, I'm going to give you this money for five years. I hope I get it back in five years. Maybe it's a little bit longer. Maybe it's a little bit shorter. But if there's an active secondary market, doesn't it start to look and feel more like a normal share in a fund? Um, the, the regulator looks at this very, very carefully, and the private equity firms are very careful to stay away from whatever the regulator would define as making this a public um, security. So they're very, very careful about this with a variety of restric restrictions out there. And we're still very far away from this being as liquid and as transparent as, uh, as uh, listed equity. Another element, which I thought you were heading towards with this question, is the fact that private equity firms themselves, like the management company, now find themselves more often than you than before as a listed entity. Have yeah. we widely publicized IPOs of the likes of Blackstone and KKR and Apollo? 
Carlisle, most of the big guys eventually chose to go for public listing. Several of the others didn't go for IPO, but they sold part of the management company themselves to other investors who just felt, hey, through a fund structure, we'd like to take a slice of that management company. And that's a development that I see slightly more critical in private equity, because what does the management company get? The management company gets basically a stream of cash flows from managing capital, and then a profit sharing mechanism, the so-called carrot interest, by which they should be motivated to do the right thing at the level of each investment in the interest of those limited partners that we spoke about before. Now, that's a structurally healthy mechanism. But if an I now, the principal or the, the group of partners of the private equity firm can decide to IPO away that management company, I basically cash in on all the expected future cash flows mm. from the area mm. management company, well, that is incentives mechanism breaks down because yeah. well, then I, I was probably reasonably wealthy before, then I am super wealthy now. Um, but I promise basically that I give all that, the fruits of my future hard work to an external set of third party investors in my fund that at the margin, alters a little bit the incentive scheme and it's not necessarily healthy for the overall private equity model. And the capex of these private equity firms doesn't represent in any way the amount of economic kind of muscle they have behind them, right? I mean, uh, uh, Blackstone, I think, what what is Blackstone's capex right now, approximately? I mean, the market cap. Yeah, the market, sorry, the market cap. I would have to look it up. Okay. I mean, but it's it's a, it's a, it's order a, of magnitude billion dollar. Yeah, these are these are billion dollar uh, companies, but they manage fifty to one hundred billion in other people's yeah. capital. Yeah. Okay, so in a sense, what I think about it, and you tell me whether I get this wrong. So, if I'm um, a classic stockbroker, what I'm doing is getting paid to pick stocks mm-hmm. that are going to outperform the market, and yeah. it's really really hard to do, right? And most people who do it over a period of time. It's either by luck or skill, but but it's it's hard to outperform the market for a long time. Yeah. Private equity funds, instead of picking stocks, can we see them as kind of firm pickers? They're picking at the level of the firm? Uh, yes, but the other important difference there is they're not only picking them, they're actually owning them with full control. Yeah. So with all the consequence of the decisions. So they right. actually have, have, they have, they have three decisions they're going to take, right? right? They're going to make the right decision what stock to pick. And then they got to be able to add value while they own it. That's it. And importantly, they got to get the exit right. And there yep. are best examples, one of which I teach you about in class, where you can get two of the three right, but mess up the third, and you basically lose and everything. And you're stuck. Okay. So as I understand, so the basic private equity model is, is something like, let's say a fund identifies a firm, it's either private or public, which mm-hmm. they'll revert to private and then do something with, which it believes it can actively manage to create value. Yep. Right. So I'm trying to think where is the differentiator here for private equity? What makes it its claim to outperform the market, which is really, as we said, really, really hard to do. So one thing is it 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 believes it can actually manage and then sell it or bring it public again. So in this model, in in a sense, a lot's kind of there's a lot of weight on the management acumen mm-hmm. of the advisors and consultants, whoever are going to create the value. And it's in a sense, if this is the case, is it really true that these companies are not being run well to begin with? I mean, is this a kind of kind of a macro advertisement for better management education? I mean, is there yeah, really that scarcity of talent? It's not a scarcity of talent. It's 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 about good governance. And this is exactly why I started to study this asset class, because I observed this over 20 years ago. I said, isn't this odd? On the surface, there's nothing these folks are doing that's different from what everybody could do. 
you can kind of leverage our business, you can buy it, you can incentivize the managers, you can put some folks in place with high power incentives and hire a bunch of consultants to do their magic, right? Because you can yeah. simplify private equity to just that. And I was fascinated by the desire to see, apparently there's something we're missing. And I, I, when, I, when I teach about this, the example I always refer to is actually a recommendation that illustrates that point. Whenever you go to a private equity conference for practitioners, try to seek out the value creation super story panel. It always exists at every practitioner conference. There's different labels, but it's basically private equity talking about the best success they've ever done. And you'll have a handful of usually male senior people of the buyout firm. They all come in with a decent level of self-confidence, brag about the billions they're managing. And then you'll hear a story like this, like, we bought this target company, our super success story, a German Mittelstand company, of course, world leader in their tiny niche business. And we identified it, we bought it from the retiring founder. And within 12 months, we doubled sales. How did we do this? We hired a salesperson. Because before they were just answering to incoming requests. And then year two, we yet grew sales again by 50%. And you're right, yes, we hired a second salesperson, but that second salesperson not only spoke German, so we could actively approach the international market. It's a caricature, of course, but I gotta give you real world examples of companies like this, where you look at the super magic of the belly creation mega story of private equity and you go like, huh, really? That's all it took? Yeah. So my learning from this is not how to figure out the genius insight how private equity saw something nobody else saw to transform this business. And with all my respect to the friends in the private equity industry, there's lots of fantastic management skill and great ideas in this industry. However, very often you're surprised that the real insight is not, why did these guys figure this out and nobody else has? But the insight is, why on earth didn't this happen before? Yeah. And that then speaks to agency conflict, governance, and lots of things private equity does to actually make sure a larger proportion of the things that obviously should happen in the interest of the shareholders actually get done. Okay. I think that that definitely has to be part of the story, but I'm always suspicious, a little bit suspicious of, of stories that create a narrative of kind of completely deserve it and merit-based payoffs. Mm -hmm. So in this story so far that we have of, of private equity is they're the kind of, um, they're guys that write in and, and because of their acumen, it doesn't even have to be kind of genius acumen. It can be kind of obvious things they can do. This creates value and away they're off. And the, and the payoff that they get from this is, is completely commensurate or at least it's aligned with their skill level. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a merit-based payoff. I want to just explore a couple other potential kind of things that also go into private equity, as I understand it, because I'd love to get your feedback on it as somebody who knows almost infinitely more than I do about this topic. So one of the problems in public companies are the principal agent problems between the shareholders on one hand and the managers of the firm on the other hand. So... If we think of it in the most simple way, a share is just a tiny sliver of ownership. So if I'm a company and I want to raise equity, I want to raise money, I print off a bunch of pieces of paper and I say, if you buy this piece of paper, you own this tiny sliver of the company. Mm -hmm. And there might be hundreds of thousands of these tiny slips of paper that go out and they're traded all the time on markets, et cetera. And the problem is, is we have <clears throat> thousands of these relatively small shareholders. They may own the stock for a day or five days or 20 days, they're relatively small 
So not very often do they own a huge stake in the company. And because of that, they don't pay nearly as close of attention. And so the company's managers can operate the company in ways that are not necessarily consistent with the shareholder's interest. So you get this classic principal agent problem with a kind of collective action problem because the shareholders have to invest a lot of time and money to try to keep track and the amount that they're going to get back from it isn't that much. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one problem. So private capital gets around this principal agent problem because it seems to me that and, and I know that you said that there's many investors, there can be many investors in a fund, but it seems to me one of private equity's advantages is that, as you just said, they own it completely and that they can intervene very actively and do intervene very actively in the debt structure of the company, in how it runs, et cetera, et cetera. So does that help overcome this principal agent problem that, that exists in public firms? Do you oh, think? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the good part of the value of private equity and directly related to what I mentioned before, the, the magic that in private equity ownership stuff gets done that should have happened in any case is related to the notion of private equity as so-called active owners. If very smart people who spend a lot of time in the due diligence understanding that business, they place a finite number of bets in their funds. It's like 10 to 20 investments, sometimes a few less, sometimes a few more. So they got to make sure that they're getting each of them right. And then during the ownership, they're kind of sitting literally behind the CEO of that company and making sure that she's doing what needs to be done to execute that business plan. So it's that active ownership that is actually hugely beneficial. And if you allow me to do so, um, I, I, I came up a couple of years ago with an analogy that I still think is a, is a good way to illustrate how private equity is is different from other forms of ownership, um, comparing this to, to public governance, like how we govern countries, right? So on the one extreme, you have the widely dispersed public share ownership. That's a little bit like a direct democracy with all the difficulties to try to figure out how to have the widely dispersed stakeholders form an opinion, get informed, get to collective action, and then to vote on something. Okay, on the yep. other extreme, you got a dictatorship or any kind of authoritarian regime, which is a little bit like the good patriarchal family business. If you're lucky and have a really, really good absolute sovereign, uh, talk to the friends in Singapore, you can have a phenomenal right that's arguably better governance for decades than what most other countries, even democracy, experience. Now, what's private equity between the two? Private equity is like the representative democracy. You have a bunch of folks, limited partners, or through their structure, their pension fund, their insurance, they give a mandate to some people who actually specialize to get the job right, politicians in the representative democracy, who elect them to parliament to really get informed about the issues at hand and on their behalf take the right decision. Okay. So between yeah, the two, yeah. you see private equity as the, as the extreme between widely dispersed ownership with some principal agent issues on the one hand side, the dictatorship with no principal agent problem, but a couple of other problems, and private equity sits in the middle. Great analogy. Thank you. That, that makes it clear. And But I wonder if there's also, of course, there's going to be still some potential principal agent problems, right, between the private equities, limited partners, and the, and the asset manager. Oh, lots uh, of them, sure. And, and so where do you think the most common principal agent problems are in the private equity space? What, what so, do you think they are? 
Private equity is pretty good at solving, in my view, the principal agent problem at the portfolio company level. You can criticize them for being yeah, slightly too much short-termist. We can talk about that later, maybe. But this, based on the very high-powered incentive system private equity puts in place also for the management team of the acquired business, they're doing a pretty good job there. Where it gets slightly more complicated is at the level up in the food chain between the ultimate asset owners, the limited partners, and the folks who are running the, the asset manager, the, the private equity fund. And yeah, those, that's, what, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and those elements are related to some issues where you know, private equity, by the nature of how this works, has incentives to sell assets a little bit too early when they get their 2x return, the fact they doubled their money, they got a good annualized return. They move on to the next, where limited partners say, you could have held on to this asset for two more years and get me more returns than I could have gotten otherwise. There's also the notion, especially on the large end of private equity, these become asset gatherers, especially if a private equity firm is publicly listed. What are all stock analysts obsessed about? Well, let's value the future discounted management fee income. Management mm. fee income is a function of the assets under management. Right. So these firms have an incentive to grow. With lots of different funds, bigger and bigger funds. And at the margin, they're less concerned about making that next super successful deal then with the fact that they shouldn't mess it up because if they have a very well-publicized catastrophe bankruptcy in their portfolio, they may lose the license to operate and not raise that next $20 billion fund. And that then kills the business model of the asset gatherer. Gotcha. So that's a, one of the disincentives and misalignments of interest between the GP of the LP. But um, I consider myself, depending on the day, either a friendly critique or a critical friend of the asset class. There are lots of elements in my research where I can pinpoint, okay, there are areas for improvement of that governance structure overall, but still compared to many other models, it's done a decent job because it solved at least a good part of the conflict at the portfolio company level. Great. Thank you. Um, another potential positive, I think. So, so if we think that they do a better job of the principal agent problem, would you say that that's true? That it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a more closely aligned yeah. um, between the owners of the asset and the and the managers of the asset uh, of the of the general manager. So, also because of the nature of the investment, as you said, it kind of sits between. It's a great analogy between the dictatorship and the direct democracy, because it has a kind of more long term private, and therefore not subject to the same sorts of market pressures. Yep. It's in a place where it could play a much more significant role in kind of managing long-term risk. And when I say managing long-term risk, I'm saying maybe incorporating environmental, social, and governance considerations into their targeting and how they manage. Do we see any real evidence of this happening? Because there's been several high-profile kind of private equity firms that have come out very strongly in environmental, social, governance kind of areas. And I wonder whether you see this as kind of greenwashing or you think there's really something to it? There's both. There's a lot of greenwashing in the industry. We could point to some examples there. Um, but there is also a very broad trend overall towards more ESG consideration also in private equity investment. And that's a, that's a fantastic thing. And that's actually coming in indirectly through financial incentives. Um, I've been involved in some conversations with senior leadership of private equity looking explicitly how to get we're truly world-class in ESG of their business, not only because they fundamentally believe it's a good thing to do, but because they said, we're in the larger end of the spectrum, we're probably gonna IPO those businesses. And if we get them ready now to kind of be categorized as one of the business that is ESG compliance or got good ESG ratings, 
we will actually get a premium in our exit. And that's so much money, it actually justifies also from a financial standpoint that we now basically trigger all these changes already and get the company ready for that. Okay. So I think those are some of the, on the positive side of the ledger, I think, for, for private equity. Let's try to unpack the use and sometimes, let's say, abuse of debt in, the, in these yeah. things. So, so let's say I'm trying to identify kind of a prime target for a private equity investment. And I would say it's probably a profitable company who has kind of positive cash flows. It maybe has valuable real estate and relatively low debt. Right. So um, let's take it out of the private equity space for a second. In bad times, things like low debt, valuable real estate, positive cash flow, et cetera, the, they allow some kind of insulation to the firm during tough or transitional times, right? When they, yeah. they need to make a change or invest in a new business model to survive, they kind of have this cushion to go to. Mm-hmm. And this is good for the company in the long term. I mean, when I'm saying long term, maybe, you know, without an end time, without an end to the timeline. And it allows it to invest, to finance changes, to compete when it needs to. But because it's such an attractive target, let's say a private equity firm takes it over, they can instantly find themselves with lots of debt now. They can find themselves having sold parts or all or parts of their real estate, and now they're paying leases on property they used to own. Yep. And because of a kind of five-year timeline, um, they have some of the same short-termism as the market. And in addition, sometimes part of that debt, uh, in worst cases, I think, and I, I think I'm, I'm anticipating what you'll say, it's not common, but in the worst case, sometimes that debt's used to make dividend payments. Yep. Um, and it's a kind of situation where I think of it this way. The PE firm <clears throat> manages their acquisitions as a portfolio of risky bets. Yep. And the bets are made much, much riskier through the tool of leverage. Yep. Right? So let's say I have 10 companies I've acquired. Let's say it's a five-year investment. And I'm, I'm the, the first one I bought, I'm selling after five years or whatever. Yep. Um, the general partner, nor the limited partners, don't really necessarily care about the outcome of any one of its bets. Yep. Right. But they use debt to make those bigger, they to make those bets bigger and more risky. As long as a few of them kind of pay off or enough pay off, the yep. investors and the fund managers are happy. Yep. And in a sense, the, the investment firm wins every transaction in the sense that it gets very high fees and it, it might not hit their hurdle rate and then get a big payoff, but it's, as you said, it's public, so it can have an asset under management, et cetera, et cetera. So it's happy. And, but there's always going to be firms that were perfectly profitable, perfectly fine before mm-hmm. that are destroyed, that, yeah. are, that go broke because they can't service the debt. Um, they made a bet that it could expand into new areas, or they hired those three new marketing people and there really wasn't the market for it, that something goes wrong. And so a necessary kind of collateral damage, right? A necessary collateral damage to the fund is several healthy funds are going to, that are healthy now, 
are going to not are going to cease to exist and all the people who have their jobs in that and their investments and their pensions and et cetera, that's going to go away. Is that is that an unfair characterization, do you think? No, there's lots of truth in what you're saying. Um, and, and, and if we unpack this a little bit, the first thing that's true, it's in, implicit in the governance structure and the incentive structure, the private equity firm, the GP, is within some limits, what I call a debt taker. So whatever leverage they can get on their deal, their incentives are to take as much as possible. Think about KKR, Argy Nabisco. If somebody can get 93% debt financing, they buy themselves a risky bet with 7% of the equity. So and just and just to be unlimited, yeah. super high powered upside, and the bankers carry all the risk. Yeah, and, so, and just to, just to make yeah. sure that 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 I understand this right, the debt doesn't go to the investors. The debt is domiciled in the firm, right? It's the firm that has the debt. So if the Absolutely, firm goes yeah. bankrupt, the, the limited partners don't have to pay that money. It's the firm that goes bankrupt. So as you Absolutely. said. The more debt they can have, the better, because as you Absolutely. said, if I can get seven, 10 percent equity and I can juice it up with 90 percent debt and I'm only exposed for my 10 percent and I have 10 of those bets, that's great. Exactly. First order effect is the debt taker, the more debt, the better. Second order effect, important, there's a limit to this because it is costly for the private equity firm to have a bankruptcy on their track record beyond the fact that they could compensate for it with other, uh, other successful investments that portfolio that every single private equity fund is. There's big reputational damage. And there's also the actual loss in capital because the private equity from the GP is usually forced to chip in a few percentages also of the equity to the fund. So it's not, it's not unlimited. They wouldn't take unlimited amount of depth. And so a bit of the discipline of the private equity firm has to come in to say no at some point and says, okay, we'll paddle back because this is not a realistic set of debt for this type of company. This is my analogy to the medication coming in. The doctor basically knows that a certain amount of whatever drug you have in front of you is unhealthy, it's gonna kill the patient. Now the other, and in my view, at least equally interesting question is the following. There is somebody who actually underwrites that risk in terms of debt, and that's usually the underwriting banker and the ultimate investor in the debt that goes in the buyout. And that, as you correctly point out, Matt, is sitting with a non-diversified model directly only in that one target company, only secured by whatever collateral or cash flow there is from this business. So if that business dies, the money is basically gone or a good part of it. The Every time you point to an over-leveraged private equity deal, or that's a, it's a crazy term for a deal that you see in hindsight that was over-leveraged or pay bought too expensive, and that then went bankrupt. Lots of people point to private equity and say, why did you do the stupid deal? I would also ask, why did the banker push so much money into private equity? Because private equity is incentives that make them debt takers. The banker at some level or whoever owns that security, irrespective of how it's going to come mixed up through junk bonds or CLOs or other fancy things, has to still understand that these are highly leveraged transactions and that you need a very prudent approach or portfolio approach for that still to make sense. Well, this is a podcast about private equity, not about banking incentives and fees. Otherwise, we could talk a little bit about why it's still rational, at least for the individual banker to package that debt that, that and to sell it off to the market. But I, I would want to make sure that it takes two to tango and it takes two parties to put debt in the private equity, the bank who arranges it and the private equity firm who takes it on. And private equity has very clear incentives. 
and as you said, it, it takes two to tango. And we could talk about the how the individual bankers are incentivized by this and whether that feeds into uh, a certain things. But if we go back to your doctor analogy, I mean, I, I'm just going to push back just a little bit on that because I think analogies are the way we understand things, at least I do. And, I, and it makes sense to me about, you know, if you give the wrong medicine, you're presented wrong with dosage. a patient, you give them the right wrong medicine. Yeah. yeah, the wrong dosage. But what if the patient's not sick? And you give them something and you say, because this has a chance to make you even bigger and stronger. Well, you're going to define non-sick, right? Okay, yeah, go ahead. It gets gets, gets to the very, very core of what private equity does. Because there's one thing you have to add to your list of characteristics of what makes a good private equity target. Something to fix. If the company is doing well, has stable cash flow, some collateral, uh, uh, low debt, plowing along fine, and there's nothing to fix. Why on earth would private equity take ownership of it? Because the current owner will be perfectly happy with it and would demand such a high price that private equity cannot possibly add value over that. Private equity takes businesses if there's something to fix. Okay. That's some level of sickness. Now, whether the sickness is lethal is a different question. But then you're on the judgment call to say, how do you justify the usage of a medication, which may have side effects, in order to get somebody who is okay-ish, possibly to really healthy? Hmm. And how often do you accept a side effect? Which is, again, in the analogy to medicine, it's exactly the type of things where ethically, we have certain rules on how the health industry deals with this. And private equity will have something in place there as well, because the mechanism fundamentally is private equity is in the business of making money. They will touch businesses if they can fix it. And let's not forget why private equity ultimately uses the debt. It's not only a question about the tax shield and stuff. Debt imposes discipline. And that gets exactly to that business. The the problem with many companies today out there, why did the person, my German analogy with the Mittelstands company, not hire a salesperson? Because they were doing just fine. And doing just fine means they had lots of assets and little debt, and they were plowing along, and it was enough to finance the good night lifestyle of the founder. Everybody is happy. Hmm. But that's satisfying. That's just fine. That's way underusing the potential of this business. We stay with this caricature because the business can do much, much better if some relatively simple things were implemented. And many of these things, and that's important, often go with a change in mindset. Focus on earnings and focus on cash. Bank debt with your cash. And you don't sleep well at night if the banker shows up the next morning and wants the debt service paid. That keeps you on your toes to a certain degree. This is healthy. No, I can see that, but but, this is horrible. But for whom is it better? For the shareholder. That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate actor that private equity optimizes, and and we both agree that this is not the only relevant actor. But that's the one that is that is uh, in in this in this core center of this entire model. Okay, so he he or she, the owner of this business, they come and they and somebody gives them a lot of money, more money than they that they anticipated they would have because they see the potential yep. that this person doesn't yep. see. Yep. Um, and that gets funneled. This is, this is my point. So that gets funneled into a portfolio. Mm-hmm. It's no longer a single business. It's not making a decision on whether the risk is worth it for that business. Right now, it's about designing a portfolio with certain amounts of risk that overall the portfolio is going to perform. Now, pri- private equity is, is a reasoning single company. 
they, they don't have the portfolio approach of venture capital that says, oh, I want the one home run that pays the fund and I can afford the six, seven, eight losses. Private equity will, I mean, at least the smart private equity firms, will never underwrite a deal when they don't see a very clear path to success in this deal. They don't say, oh, in a certain economic scenario, I will lose these guys, but these other folks here do really well. Um, that's typically not how they function. They, have, they, they place a dozen bets and they know that they have the safety net against having gotten wrong mis one mistake in there that they can balance it out, but they don't optimize the portfolio. They optimize every single company. Why wouldn't they optimize the portfolio? Because the interrelatedness between those businesses are so complex that it doesn't make any sense to see, oh, you know, I'll do I'll do eight of those and five of those and then so, kind of balance. So they out. might they might not have a a complete portfolio approach. So fair enough. But it surprises me that in a sense, when they take on debt, they're taking risk, right? They're adding risk. Yeah. yeah. And they're adding that risk knowing that because it's the nature of risk that they're adding this thing that they, they're upping the probability that it's going to fail. Yeah. And that has to be offset by higher expectations of earnings. Yeah. And that has to be hedged because you have more than one company. So if a private equity firm only had a single firm it was invested in, Mm -hmm. Right, and it had no other, no other port kind of portfolio, or no other kind of things. Would it act in the same way? Do you think? Would it take as many risks? Within limits, yes. Because, mind you, think about the second actor in this. There's also a banker who has no diversification impact who believes this is a reasonable level of leverage for this company. Unless he he or she is building a portfolio on his books as well, and is incentivized to make to fill his book, yeah, his or her book, yeah. yeah but then again, the incentive problem is, is is somewhere else, and not all private equity debt is diversified away in this fashion. Okay. Some is point well taken, um, but but then again, you can make the same argument about the the, the prior owner who also may have had some level of portfolio diversification approach, which is healthy usually, right? So I wouldn't push this too far. I think the, the ultimate problem of private equity does not lie so much in the um, use and abuse of debt in this fashion. I think okay. the, the beneficial aspect of debt and the focus of everybody's mindset on cash that pays bills is actually a healthy feature of private equity. One of the ingredients of what you said before, like why, why does this asset class actually strive and gain market share over time lies exactly in this advantage. Okay, well, I wanna talk about that a little bit later as well. But I, I, I wonder, one of the things that I've seen you write, and um, I, I think it's a great statement. You, you've said that people's opinions about private equity are ideological mm -hmm. and often driven by this lack of facts and unsubstantiated myths. So. What are the main myths you see? Because if private equity is generally benign, mm -hmm. right? It's just a, another asset class and, and there's nothing kind of uniquely destructive about it in any way. It's not a uniquely destructive form of capitalism. Why mm -hmm. do so many people believe that it is? Why do you think there's such a, a in a sense, a, a reputation of being a kind of destructive form of capitalism? It, it's very easy to explain in my view. It has to do with the fact that it's an asset class, as we started out saying, that calls itself private. So people don't know what's going on. 
And they only observe the extremes. And the two extremes are usually, you know, um, founder of private equity fund XYZ, you know, buying the biggest and fanciest apartment in New York City or doing something else extravagant, showing that some people who do private equity right get uh, rich beyond what at least many continental Europeans would consider justified. And on the other hand, you see the cases in private equity, which obviously exist when the formula is poorly applied or, or it was just bad luck and companies go bankrupt. And you don't see much of what's going on in the middle. And if the, you see those two things as an asset class that's opaque, right. and sometimes something pops out and you know, a certain person is getting super rich and these thousand people lose their job because the deal didn't work out. And I don't see anything else. I also will not like private equity because this combination, I don't like. I, I agree. And I think that must fuel a lot of the negative publicity, as you say. But I think there is something... There is a feeling, and, and this is what I'm trying to get at, whether you think that this is a myth. There's a feeling that as a kind of byproduct of the business model, the fundamental business model, it will, as a kind of collateral damage, destroy otherwise viable businesses. And that a lot of the kind of negative publicity that comes is this sense that if it wasn't for that private equity takeover, the business that supermarket that I always love to go to, the founders, the managers, the shareholders, they would have been okay. But it's not, it's not that the fun man, you know, one, one question is kind of the, the caricature, the kind of cartoonish, evil, you know, uh, private equity person like hiring, I don't know, Rod Stewart to come and sing at their birthday, right? This is kind of cartoonish. But, yep. but another kind of, it seems to be a more kind of, I don't know, a, a deeper uh, critique is that it destroys healthy tissue as well as saving bad tissue. It's a form of, of capitalism that, as I said, a necessary byproduct, it destroys otherwise viable businesses. Do you think that's one of the myths or do you think that there's something to that? It is certainly factually correct that private equity also, you can point us to businesses that otherwise would have been just fine and private equity came in and destroyed it. Um, I would attribute this to bad decision-making. That's the dosage uh, truly chosen of the, of, the, of the treatment that can be beneficial. Now, the empirical question is how often does this happen? And how do you compare this to the cases where private equity arguably had a positive impact to the business or even safe to business, which you could also probably point to. It's very difficult to get empirical data on this. And this comes from somebody who's basically spent 20 years trying to gather data in private yeah, equity. Exactly. Probably have seen, has seen more than, than, than most other people about it, but it's still not trivial to get data on this, in particular because you have this challenge that you know that people don't talk and bankrupt businesses don't respond to surveys, and you don't really see much hot yeah. data on, on many of the cases where private equity may be involved in, 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 in failures. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by, by, by the question, by your rationale, however, because it, it'll be interesting to see if there's indeed an argument that the fact that private equity diversifies risk at the equity level and that the debt holders diversifies at the debt level pushes these transactions to be more risky. And we're, I'm thinking out loud here. It's intriguing because obviously in the, in the world of a, of a perfect kind of founder-owned, family-owned business with this cushion who's doing just fine, who is the person is the founders are rich enough and they're taking care of the business having substance and taking good care of their employees. That's certainly a happy state and many businesses have been striving like this. However, 
a, a good part of capitalism is not about that form of governance. And even if you look at publicly listed companies, their risk is diversified away in a much more drastic way. The individual shareholder of you know, is, is a, a share in General Motors doesn't care about the risk about General Motors because they're dramatically diversified. Hmm. And you would argue that these people, these large companies also finance their debt on capital markets where, where the, invest, the debt holder has opportunities to diversify the risk in the debt. So why would the risk appetite of the CFO of a publicly listed company be any different than of the investment manager of the private equity firm? Because he's only responsible for the one company, this might be the case. And because he might not have access to the same amount of debt financing that uh, that a very powerful um, private equity firm might. I don't know. But then, I, but then she, but then she, the CFO, is not doing the job as the custodian of the of their shareholders. It depends because it on is in the shareholders' interest to maximize their return at the portfolio level. At what time? This is precisely at, what private equity does better. At what time? At what time level, though? That, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, uh, because you have this kind of fixed five-year term, right? I mean, the, the fund structure is typically a ten-year fund life, and so depending on when you buy it, you have anywhere between five and eight, nine years left. But so what is it? What is, is the life cycle of a firm when they identify a firm, buy it, and then and then what's the what's the kind of ideal amount of time? I know it's a ridiculous three, question, but what's to, it? Three, I mean, three, three, three to five years. Three to five years. Yeah, most of the years. Yeah, yeah. But you can go longer if you if you need to. Let's talk about that information for a second because I, I want to get to that and I want to get to to your company. Um, there is a lot of controversy about whether, in fact, uh, private equity outperforms public markets, mm -hmm. right? So some argue that it's historically outperformed public equity, but that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. And other argues that, you know, look, money continues to pour into these firms because they must outperform these other classes. So part of it, of course, is this problem of privacy. So a lot of the information is very difficult. You get very uh, incomplete information. But a couple of questions. One, I want to ask you about uh, Parex, but I also want to say, with all of the data that you've seen, do you think that private equity continues to consistently outperform public markets? I have to define consistently. Um, but with this, with this uh, because not everybody is there. I would say there's, there's overwhelming evidence that based on the data that's available on private equity, private equity by and large over long cycles has outperformed public equities. By how much would you say? A few of the basis points, two, three, five percent annually, depending on the data set and the time period. Okay. However, however, a couple of very important qualifications here, and this is why this topic fills bookshelves of academic research. Um, the one is basically, um, uh, what's the yardstick do you use to compare private equity to? Do you just say it's equity, so I compare it against a global equities index, like an MSCI right, right. or country weighted? Yeah. Or do I get a bit more specific and I, I correct for the type of industries that private equity is choosing? Do I get even more correct and correct for the type of leverage private equity takes on, which is more sure. leverage in the public market? And then you get even more specific and some people say you're going to control for the size of businesses and all of a sudden you're in the small cap in certain industries in certain countries, which happen to also do very well. So yeah. the part of my academic colleagues who land in the camp of it doesn't outperform, justify the argument with a specific set of very legitimate assumptions about how you would actually adjust and filter 
public equities to correspond to private equity. Yeah. Now, I don't want to replay that debate. I've basically no. given out up research on this 15 years ago because <laughs> I started out with some of this work and I said, okay, it's interesting to kind of figure out where the average lies. But I think it's much more intriguing to see what makes you above average. Yeah. Because whether it is a few hundred basis points outperforming or underperforming is an interesting academic question. As an investor, I want to see if there is indeed a way to get me to this part of private equity, which outperforms listed equities, however you define them, not by 2% annual, but by 15% annual. Sure. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and there's great variability in the performance of different private equity funds. And, and as I understand it, the company that you founded and, and that was recently acquired by MJ Hudson mm-hmm. was this was in this space of from as i understand it i'm an investor and i'm trying to make sense of where where in the private equity space can i find someone that is in that let's say top quartile and you give you you go through or the company went through and looked at all the available data and some not publicly available data and were able to use this to construct a kind of uh, scorecard of a sort. Did I get this right? Yeah, that, that's part of what we do. And it's actually ironically the, set, the, the the part that I started out to do and then did something else and came back to it. Give me, okay. let, me, let me give you the, 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 the 180 seconds of the, of the history. Of <laughs> no, this. no, so it'd be great. I, I, I got out of my PhD and I had exactly this as my as my re, as business idea to say, let me, it, it is, the starting point is, it is both possible and economically really meaningful to find the above average performer in private equity. It's possible because there's certain features that you can look at that are persistent over time that basically you can analyze from the past and understand skill that translate into future returns, which you cannot do in the stock market. You can do it in private equity, reliably so. And the other element is worth it because the interquartile range, the difference between the really good guys and the really bad guys is this dramatic in private equity. Yeah. So I thought out, okay, fantastic. Who will want something like this? It's the investor who says, give me some kind of rating, scorecard, whatever, to get me to the good private equity funds. And I, 2008, teamed up with some great people, tried to start that business. Didn't really go anywhere. Um, Probably 2008 was not a good time to sell anything <laughs> <No>. to anybody. <laughs> but, but also the, the business model was not fully thought out yet because I'm talking to people who are in the business of picking private equity funds and says, well, I can algorithmically pick private equity funds. So I'm triggering lots of the not invented here. So done a few other things and been teaching and researching. And then um, I, I found myself called by three of the largest private equity firms in the world, independent from one another in 2011. And they basically said, Oliver, take our track record, take our data, crunch some numbers and figure out, like you would do in the academic work, what's good, bad and ugly. And one of the firm I can talk about right now are the friends from Pamira here in London, who have decided in their 2012 fundraise to copy paste some of my results into their fundraising documents, these PPM documents that they sent to investors. Totally fine, they paid for it. But they referenced this as this is done by Oliver which made me very proud. I called them up and says, thank you guys, I'm flattered, but why are you doing this? And their answer basically encouraged me to start that business in its, its current form, because they basically said, yeah, um, we're Pamira and we're a big GP, but we're always questioned by the, by the skeptical money, by the asset owners, the limited partners, when we produce a number, pick a benchmark, throw out a data point there. If we tie our hands and subject ourselves to your academic work, Oliver, Folks know you're not writing in the review of financial studies to make us look better or worse than the others. That gives us credibility. 
And I hadn't seen this application of my work yet. So I pivoted totally from a service to the limited partner to a service to the general partner, who basically then would subscribe to this as a bit of vendor diligence. Here, Mr. Investor, is part of my diligence ready-made by somebody who does just this and hopefully does what he's doing. And so I took a sabbatical at the time, which ended just as my as my trial involvement started, ironically, um, to basically program out the methodology, start building the team, and then offer initially the service to the fund managers as kind of self-assessment for marketing purposes. And ironically, when the asset owners saw this for five years, they came knocking on my door and says, can you please do this for us to screen the market? And I said, no, thank you. I don't like conflicted business models because I cannot serve both sides of the table. No, yes. Until some of my advisory board members convinced me you can actually do it because you claim to famous that it's all algorithmic. Yeah. You're not selling your opinion. You're selling just the method on standardized data. Exactly. Yeah, you yeah. can actually serve both. And this is why we're now running, running on two legs. That that's that's a great story. I, I love it, and um, it, it's 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 interesting because I I wouldn't it wouldn't have been an obvious thing to say I'm going to um, the play here is the lack of transparency hurts if we can say the good players because they can't prove to anybody that they're good. Yeah, and the the problem is of course to to then how to how you tackle the market where everybody is stuck in kind of presenting things the traditional way. And you come up with something novel, and of course, the first bias is against you. Say, well, why are you guys using those strange Perox numbers when everybody else is getting the, the fundraise with this way? So yeah. we basically started from the very top. We, we managed to get KKR as our first client to be public about it, presented to their LPs, work with industry associations, and a little bit like, like, a, like tracking the market from the top, and then gradually now working our way down. Interesting. Fascinating. So... I want to. We're running out of time, and you've been really generous with your time. I I, I don't want to uh, uh, take advantage too much of that. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the growth uh, and the future of uh, private equity for a second. And and one thing I wanted to ask you about is that one argument is that one of the reasons that private equity continues to grow is that in a kind of environment of very low interest rates. People are are looking. They're searching for higher returns. They have to. So let let's think of pension funds and things like this. Yeah. And pension funds, you know, often they have borrowing constraints, right? And yep. but they're but they're looking for some way to enhance their their returns. So a pension fund may do this by kind of juicing the returns in some way to use it to use a term. I don't know if it is even timely yep. anymore. Yep. But they juice their returns by going into a private equity because then that doesn't necessarily then reflect as a le- as leverage so they okay. they let somebody else borrow the money for them is that is that is, yeah. is that um accurate it's it's part of the story i don't think it's the whole story i'm not sure how big the part of the story is but yeah absolutely absolutely but again i play the question back um, I wouldn't blame private equity for this, but maybe whoever is in charge of regulating pension funds should probably give them some better guidance and ability to leverage up their returns otherwise without paying reasonably high fees to somebody who manages a private equity fund. Okay, fair enough. Um, the second thing is that it also, uh, for the same sort of institutional investors, that a part of the story is also that it artificially smooths returns. Um, which can be useful in some certain institutional funds who have certain kind of sell triggers. Have you heard this argument before? And again, do you think it's it's mostly for the pension regulators that this is a problem? And, and, and no. also big insurers? 
No, I think it's it's much broader than this, and it's 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 a, it's a huge part of the story. So, um, I mean, beyond the, the 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 two important trends of why private equity is growing, first I would mention um, it's it's the alternative to listed equity, and listed equity is getting really cumbersome with all the regulation and compliance. So lots of companies actually are happy to be bought out by private equity and be delisted because it becomes such a such a, a level of complexity to be on the stock market. And then, as you said, lots of more and more investors would like to put money into private equity. And the smoothing is a very powerful element because that, that speaks to the other area of, of my current research interest in private equity, which is better understanding private equity risk. And it's ironic, if you feed private equity in every standard asset allocation model that maximizes expected return on your equity over volatility, the answer will always be put basically everything you got to private equity and keep a few euros on the side in order to kind of manage liquidity. Why is this the case? Because even if we assume that private equity just gives you the same returns as public equity, it looks phenomenally low risk because what's still the policy of private equity? You buy something, you have it there at cost. And then maybe once a quarter or once a year, you try to market to market or try to picture a curve where you have stock on the one hand side that's moving every second. And you've got private equity on the other, where you have a movement and valuation prudently up or prudently down every quarter or every year. Well, if your risk model runs on volatility per unit of return, hmm. you understand why private equity looks phenomenal. Is it really so risk-free? Obviously not. But we don't even have a way to capture risk that's generally accepted absent any kind of movement in market value that you can observe. Yeah. So and this, this is, is a very, what... very fundamental question. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why lots of people say, hey, it seems to be really smooth and low risk and give me equity type returns. Let's go for private equity. And that's where I said maybe artificially, because this might be, again, where there's some sort of principal agent problem here, because knowing that their clients are, are looking for smooth returns and that there's not a consistent the accepted measurement of this, as you said, mark to market, that that might be a way that that they can artificially smooth these returns to make their investments even more attractive to these institutional investors. Well, they don't even have to smooth it. They are smooth to begin with because you don't have much movements up or down and you have lots of leeway in how to do that mark to market value. That's, that's what I mean, that there's yeah. lots of leeway there. And yeah. so because there's lots of leeway there, then you would expect people to act in their self-interest. So a couple kind of quick fire ones before, mm -hmm. before we go. So, you know, SPACs have been a growing asset class, if you call it an asset class, very quickly in the last, let's say, what, two years, year and a half, two years. First of all, if you could explain to our listeners what they are and, and how they relate to private equity, if at all. Yeah, so, so SPACs have been around for a long, long time. They just out of nowhere gained a huge uh, popularity very, very recently. Um, you can probably label a SPAC as a perversion of private equity because it's basically a single asset private equity fund that's created to which investors subscribe at day zero, not knowing what they invest in. And then they basically run around as a listed entity on the stock market and they look for something to acquire which is similar to a private equity fund, which also looks for things to acquire over a 10-year horizon, buying and selling those businesses with lots of checks and balances in place. And that portfolio aspect, that from the perspective of the equity investor is a very healthy one. A spec takes that out and just says, the investor puts in money to trust 
a certain group of people who are running the spec to get that one rifle shot investment right and boom all of a sudden they have a part of that um, as a listed company much more than in private equity that triggers the question for me where does the value add come from other than building betting on the fact that whoever sells that asset to the spec is entirely idiotic and leaving tons of money on the table i don't see the logic of value creation there's mm. no kind of long-term plan they don't they don't have to exit the people the, the whoever owns the spec is on the stock market so they're basically done as soon the, the people who run the spec are done with their work as soon as the acquisition happened and then the company is there and then they can in theory go away and i don't know in detail what the incentive structure is that but i assume they're it's somewhat profitable for the people who run it yeah so i see this as a perversion of private equity more than anything else i would never put my money in there or recommend anybody else put their money in there it's high risk it certainly has worked out but i can imagine lots of reasons why it may work out in a very specific market environment with lots of greed out there and I'm a poor professor. I have no money to invest in anything of this stuff, but I would I would never put my money there. And I would bet we see some major, major issues with specs in the foreseeable future. They will quickly disappear. Great. Very succinct. Appreciate that description. Let's talk very quickly about evolving regulatory environments for private mm-hmm. equity. Elizabeth Warren, for example, has targeted the industry at least on two fronts. One on who owns the debt raised by the private equity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the company. And she's looking at the carried interest provision as a tax thing. Now, the carried interest provision, targeting that is is very old. It's been around for a long time to try to target that. That's not so interesting. But what I thought was interesting is we're back to talking about the leverage here. Mm -hmm. As I understand, she's proposing that the investors do not have this kind of limited shield against the debt that they would raise for the firm. And that she says that what this again, the arguments that are are used are some of the same ones that we've covered here. But I have read things where this is looked at with kind of uh, almost dismay in the industry that someone would be stupid enough to kind of think that this might work. Do you think this is a kind of uh, a logical target for regulation? I think it's going to be super complex to get this, get this right. Um, because the fallback is always, why do you want to treat private equity differently than any other company and any other structure which has a limited liability vehicle that protects the people who put up the equity, which is first on the line if anybody loses money, in order so that they can only lose what they put in. It's a very fundamental principle of, of company structure that's been around for, for hundreds, of years, hundreds of years, and that actually proven to be very healthy because it, it, it fosters entrepreneurial activity. Why yeah. would you want to treat private equity differently there? It brings me back to my, my own involvement with these, some of these regulatory processes back 10, 12 years ago when I've been doing a, a expertise for the European Union Parliament, explaining to them what they ask for in terms of questions about how private equity works in the context of then possibly them reflecting at the parliamentary level about regulation. Um, I wasn't asked whether they should regulate or not uh, private equity, but I basically told them in closing over a coffee, like, don't try to regulate private equity, you will never get this right. For a very simple hmm. reason, they're super focused on this one thing. And even if you're you maybe as smart as a politician, as a private equity fund manager, you got to look at so many things, you don't have the capacity to get this right with all the complexity, they will always navigate around it. You can make their life miserable, 
And some critics say that eventually some European regulation was successful in doing that without actually solving much of the problem or improving much of the situation. I'm very worried that any effort to attack debt and debt ownership in the same way will have the same challenge. My recommendation at the time in Brussels and still today is not try to regulate them to do that exactly they should be doing what you want them to do and vice versa, but empower the limited partners. Give the limited partners good performance measures, good data, good transparency, good vehicle, so they can actually direct capital to those private equity fund managers who know what they're doing and ideally do not only good things for the ultimate shareholders, but also for ESG and other relevant targets and cut off the others from funding. Much more efficient than politicians trying to do that. That's a great place to end it. Uh, articulate and concise. So, th- so thank you. And, and I know I failed you at giving you short answers to a short. No, no, it's it's exactly it's exactly what I wanted. So I'm going to get you out of here on just one last question. Um, and I ask each of the guests so far to this: Can you tell us a book or a film, TV show, podcast, whatever that help you get through the lockdown? It can be fiction, nonfiction, serious, not serious. What oh, what can you give us? It's a beautiful one. It has about 198 pages and calls shares purchase agreement of Perox company sold to MJ Hudson. (laughs) (laughs) And this is what's helped you get through the lockdown. I love it. So maybe you it's could true. just tell it's you true. could just there tell no, people there was no capacity for for other reading when you when when you in addition to kind of your academic job tried to not only kind of keep your company alive and, and have it grow last year which we did very nicely but also pull up a transaction like this which will put it on the long term good platform going forward so yeah wow. that was indeed my bedtime reading that got me through the pandemic <laughs> fair enough <laughs> and congratulations for that Oliver it was great thank you. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.